And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem he made machines, invented by skillful men, to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. This is a word fitly spoken. Willie Grills, Zoe and Heidi here to talk about or continue our discussion of technology, the Christian, and society. Zellwin, how's it going? Going great. It's been a little cool today. I actually had to turn on the heat a little bit, if you can believe it. Oh my! We just, we've had an unusual summer, to say the least. I this is this is not normal even for this part of the world, but everything is going pretty well, and the garden is coming along nicely, and actually starting to get some produce from it so i'm excited for that so what about you willie very nice we've had some uh storm a little, quite a bit of rain the last couple of days here so that's that's not too bad a little bit of hail but nothing nothing major the rain was definitely needed uh, the garden continues to do well the corn is over with tomatoes are still coming on i have a zucchini plant that refuses to stop <laughs> i hope you enjoy zucchini Right. The fall crops are coming along. We've got some pumpkins already out. Lots of dipper gourds starting because why not? So, you know, it's, it's going to be pretty fun. I enjoy the fall vegetables a lot as well. Just looking at them more than anything. I, I could care less for pumpkin. And you can't eat a gourd. So there you go. Is this where we have to shut down the podcast now? You said you can't care for pumpkin. So. <laughs> right, right. You know, I'm a, I'm a white guy who, you know, a pumpkin, you know, pumpkin pie is good for the first two bites of that slice of pumpkin pie. No, it's good. Don't, don't, don't write letters. I like pumpkin pie. I am an American. Let's not start comparing genealogies now, folks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, uh, it, it's always good to see them and carving uh, jack-o'-lanterns, things like that. That'll be fun. You know, unless that offends you, in which case I, we totally won't be carving any jack-o'-lanterns. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Right. You know, the corn will start to dry. We'll make a fodder shock or two. That'll be good. You know, cheap decorations for fall. So it, it's pretty nice, pretty wholesome. So, And speaking of which, as we talk about, you know, being out in the garden, getting our hands dirty, and then enjoying the, the yield of the earth that God gives us, we now shift our focus to the topic for today, which is technology. Now, in the first episode where we discussed this, we kind of went very broad, talking about the implications of technology in an industrialized society, what that means for us, some of the positives, but also many negatives that we often forget. So with this episode, we want to take a look at biblical examples and how they inform us about the history of technology and its use among God's people. Zelwyn, do you have any words to add before we dive in? I would just recommend to our listeners, especially if this is the first time you're hearing our technology episode, we're not going to de delve into our definitions all that much for this episode because we did that at great length in the previous one. So I would really encourage you, if you haven't heard the first one, to go back and listen to that one because this will be a continuation of that theme. So do you want to just dive right in then to, to Genesis 4? Yeah, let's dive right in, you know, and... Fair warning, you know, this can get a little weird sometimes, a little bit different. The perspective can be a little bit different, but hey, if you think that's weird, just wait till we get into Freemasonry, right? So, <laughs> then it's going to get extremely esoteric. So. Right. But that's okay. There's there's hidden things in the world. So let's uh, let's take a look at <laughs> let's take a look at our first biblical example. Well, I'm going to read just a little bit of Genesis 4 to give us some context here, uh, starting at verse 18. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Now, that mention of Tubal-Cain is really what we want to focus in on here, because this is the earliest reference we have to 
an explicit technological advance being made. Now, I think you could make the case very strongly that Adam being commanded to work the garden back in Genesis 2 would have done that through the use of some kind of you know, instrument, some kind of technology. I mean, obviously, when we hoe something or you know, whatever it might be, we have to use a certain level of tech. But I think it's interesting that technology, this advancement is mentioned in connection specifically with the line of Cain and with in very close proximity to Lamech, who kind of epitomizes that line. What what do you think, Willie? Sure. And we, you know, you can, we can nitpick a little bit here and say, well, technically, you know, the guys who have cattle are developing some kind of technology or the, or the lyre and the harp, right? Whatever. Or the lyre and the pipe, I think is how the translation we're using it says, right? It's right. Harp and organ in the King James and lyre and, and pipe. And anyway, it doesn't matter. So, <laughs> you know, there's some measure here, but we tend to focus on Tubal Cain because of how important ironworking is going to be and, and what it's going to do for what it's going to do for society. Yeah, it's interesting that connection to Cain. Now now who, now who was Cain? Cain of course being the eldest son, I believe, of of course we can get to that debate of Adam, the one who kills Abel and as a result is driven out of Eden to live in the land of Nod in the land of wandering. And his line, which culminates in Lamech boasting about killing a man, is an evil line. This is not the, the sons of God. These are the, the sons of men who, for because of their increasing wickedness, will bring on the flood in Genesis chapter 6. So right. this is definitely not... It's not the, a glowing kind of line that you would want to claim to be a part of. Not that right. anybody can, but... Right, and just real quick, since we started with Cain, it's important to point out that the Enoch in 417 is not Noah's relative. Right. Enoch, right. Right. It's Enoch, son of Jared, the father of Methuselah. Right. So that that's different. So different Enoch, total, different line, and, and yes, a, a cursed line. So you have these things coming from, now, of course, every man has fallen at this point in history, but these men are particularly singled out as wicked you know even lamech seems to have seems to be the first polygamist in the bible (laughs) and what's interesting though though about that is about polygamy is you know the whole debate over it but it never really ends good for anyone who practices it in the bible yeah i can't think of a single single instance and so we come to tubal cain one great name you know kind of an (laughs) ominous sounding name really we're unsure why he has that name, what the significance of the name is. Is it in order to distinguish him from the other Tubal, son of Japheth? Does Cain mean smith, like a metal worker, or something like that? Scholars have different ideas. And like many Old Testament scholars, they're just making it up. So <laughs> You can make it say anything you need. That's right. Yeah, that's that's the that's the thing with languages, you know. People like to just everybody's gonna have that special insight, you know, to make that their little notch in the in the academic books somewhere to make their splash in the world, I suppose. Which is another fruit of technology, I suppose. <laughs> but the the thing that I think we want to think about the most with Tubal Cain here is that because he is called the father of the of forgers of bronze and iron we have the emergence of this technology coming from this cursed line. So the question becomes, is this an evidence, say, of God just kind of giving them a blessing and, you know, using them to still bring good into the world? Or is this a subtle, if not complete, um, I don't think it is complete, indictment of this process? Right. You, You know what I mean? Right. And that's the question, you know, is it a blanket indictment? I don't think it really can be because we're going to see technology put to good use. But in what way is it an indictment? I mean, think of it this way. If Tubal Cain is a blacksmith, that means he can hammer out both a plow and a sword. Right. And so with this technology, he has the ability to usher in two great revolutions in the world, agricultural and then also military. Right. Well, and also, in a, in a religious sense, the ability to fashion idols. 
which will become certainly, so certainly. Um, so prominent in the Old Testament. I mean, we don't want to overlook the fact that, yes, anything can be an idol, and, you know, that's an appropriate way to use it. But idols, especially in the Old Testament, are almost invariably some kind of image, some kind of right. picture. Yeah, and so, often metal. And often metal, yeah. Yeah. Whether, whether overlaid over, like, wood or actually just cast out of metal, it doesn't make any difference. The point being that it's still a product of what Tubal-Cain has brought into the world. Right. So with that said, then, what do we do with it? So the first thing we can think of is, okay, if we can do this, here we have a technology, any technology man's going to be able to abuse. Well, right. what could possibly be wrong with fashioning things that make things easier for us? Well, really, the thing that is problematic about all of this is that what is arising from this moment is an increasing desire for power and control. And what I mean by that is even with something, let's say, you know, fairly positive, fairly unambiguously good, like the plow, when we bring the plow into existence, that begins to cultivate in the, in the minds of men this idea that, you know, we can take control of a greater amount of land, for example. I mean... Even, you know, with a horse-drawn plow, you can only cover so much ground, but with a tractor-drawn, you know, toolbar or plow or whatever, you can cover, you know, hundreds of acres, and being able to control and to subdue that much land is going to breed that sense of power and control in us. Mm -hmm. Now, and of course, with, you know, military something of sword, that will actually breed it in the sense of trying to dominate other men and to take over other lands. So, Technology kind of brings with it, regardless of what kind it is, this increasing desire for control over something. Would you agree? Sure. And it certainly seems like very early on in human history, wickedness is starting to increase. It's the question of how many years do you think it was between Adam and the flood? But you have Cain and his descendants, and then apparently, while Cain is also bearing children, Adam and Eve are still bearing children. Right. Because you have Seth, who comes. So from Genesis 4, then you go to Genesis 5, which is essentially the the descendants of Adam, which brings us all the way down to Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth, of course. And then right. you get into Genesis, Genesis 6, which speaks of corruption of mankind. Now... Things seem to be moving relatively fast between Genesis 3 and Genesis 6. Now, there there is a significant amount of time in between the two. Right. Nevertheless, it's probably a shorter period of time, say, between us and these events. And so, <laughs> so what's been going on here? Is there a significance with Cain going out, his sons developing these new technologies, building cities, and the increase of wickedness in the land that ultimately leads to the flood. I think you can make a pretty good case for it. The city that Cain built is not, we shouldn't think of it as in terms of our modern cities, like, you know, these huge sprawling areas with all kinds of buildings. That's not what the Bible's talking about. What it's probably talking about is some kind of walled enclosure, like to set up a fortress of some kind. And by setting up this fortress, Cain is really showing the state of his heart, which is leading him to rely no longer on the Lord, whom he has rejected and forsaken, but increasingly on the works of his own hands. And because his generations and the line coming after him are the ones bringing about so many of these technological advances, I really do see in Tubal Cain and his brothers and, you know, that whole generation coming forth from Cain as being an example of men who have increasingly become corrupted because they've really looked to their own works and their own technologies as opposed to the Lord. And they will finally, you know, just completely reject it so that the wickedness increases more and more. Right. And I, and I think it really reaches its peak at this, at least at this, at this point in time in, in the biblical timeline with Genesis 6. When it comes to pass, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were unto them, sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took unto them wives. And then this whole thing you know, kind of spirals down into wickedness until God is like, okay, that's enough. And it's only in like six verses in Genesis 6 between it came to pass and God's like, I repent of what I did. Right. You know? 
or right. you know, it, it repented the Lord as as it were. The Lord was sorry, I guess we would say today. And so the Lord is grieved by what man has done, and so he decides to to cleanse the earth. We we can't pretend as if that, that that's not what the, the genealogy is building up to, because right. I think it clearly is. And, you know, what do we think? Are are most of the men at that time descendants of Cain? Is that really for us to know? What percents of Adam, what percents of Cain, what percents of other people? But the these are the two big lines that you see. It's Adam and Cain. Right. Between Genesis 4 and Genesis 6. Well, and we're told in, in Genesis 6 too, regardless of what percentage is what, the the line of Adam has also become corrupted through absolutely, the line absolutely, of Cain. yeah, with and, one exception. Well, yeah, with with one exception, or you know, maybe a few exceptions who yeah. have since died. Well, yeah, one, one, yeah, right, right, yeah. There <laughs> were good men who well died or didn't die. This is the case of Enoch. True, but, true. <laughs> yeah, Enoch is taken away. See, we've already we've already hit Enoch. We've hit Tubal Cain. Now we just got to talk about the giants, and we'll be good. And we'll and we'll figure it out here. Yeah. <laughs> But I really do think the the point in all of this to take away from it is that tendency which technology tends towards, which is increasing this desire for control and power over our environment, especially at the expense of saying, you know, this is our God. You know, right. God is which, not the one in control, but we are. Which which tends which tends to destroy faith, which is what we have in Cain. Right. I mean, Cain does have some at least some assurance from the Lord. And, and of course he, he rejects it. Right. And right. so I'm talking about Cain, the dad, not Tubal Cain. So <laughs> it, it's a very interesting thing that happens. And, and we see this all throughout the Bible. We're going to look at some specific examples in the, in the next couple segments here, but of men using technology to separate themselves from God. You know, sometimes intentionally, perhaps sometimes unintentionally. Right. And I think our question is, do we see this today? Or do we allow technology to build a wall to where we can avoid God or God's people, as it were? Without question. I mean, especially as we live in a culture which continues to have technology that ironically separates us, even while it it's bringing, you know, claims to be bringing us closer together. I do think that we are starting to see in our technologies a, you know, an increasing desire to overcome all things. Like our problem, we often think of our problems not in terms of sin, but in terms of, well, we just don't have enough technology or we just don't have enough control over it. Yeah, if we just have that one breakthrough, we're finally going to stop the curse of sin, which is death. Right. With the whole transhumanist movement things like that, you know, where, where men are basically being hooked up to machines or becoming part machine or, or having their genes altered so that they can live a little bit longer or in theory live forever. We've really crossed an ethical line somewhere along the way. Well, even even with something as more, more innocuous as, say, education, for example, we have this unwavering belief that education will fix everything, that if we just had enough you know, education, then there would be no more racism. There'd be no more poverty. There'd be no more, I don't, you know, warism in here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I really do, I really do see that as another function of the same drive of saying that all we really need is to have more control and more of something, and then our problems will go away. Well, yeah. And it tends to flip-flop you know, back and forth too, because it'll be the same people who want to control education, who then want to control the technology itself too. Right. And restrict it from, from whoever that they choose. Well, more on that. We got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more word fitly spoken. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly.
And we're back. You are listening to Word Fitly, Willie Grills, Zell and Heidi here talking about technology and the Christian. So in the last segment, we discussed Tubal Cain and, and what that means, a little bit of discussion about some early biblical genealogy and familial curses again. We always seem to come back to that. <laughs> the real themes of Word Fitly. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's kind of a big deal in the Bible. <laughs> Yeah, we used to believe those warnings in the commandments about punishing to to the generations, but you know, that's just too much law talk. <laughs> Be talking the way of the gospel, Willie. <laughs> right. Not so much in the way of the Bible though. Yeah. <laughs> but, so now we're gonna talk about something a little bit interesting, and that's the subject of idolatry, how it fact I mean literal idolatry and technology what that means is their power in an image, that sort of thing. Zellin, what, what do you what do you think? Well, I think we'll begin this discussion by referring to another passage, and that would be the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar found in Daniel chapter 3. And so I just want to read a little bit of that again. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. He ain't messing around, is he? <laughs> right. <laughs> not a good idea, Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he's going to be driven out later, of course, to uh, eat grass like an ox, but that hasn't quite come yet. Uh, the reason that I bring this up is because we see here in Nebuchadnezzar's image a clear example of technology being used for idolatrous purposes, and for that reason, power being ascribed to that technology in and of itself, as if the, the image or, you know, the divinity within this technology was actually real, you know, that it had some sort of power over men to make them fall down in worship and subservience to it, right? Mm -hmm. So where do you want to go with it from there? Well, when we look at idolatry and graven images, one, it's men, first and foremost, just speaking of the actual artist, it's an artist putting the skills God gave him to ill use, to put it lightly. Use, using half the log to cook his food and half the log to worship. There, there you go. Exactly. That, that prophet imagery. Right. So then you have Nebuchadnezzar commissioning this. And so his sin is arguably greater there. So here he sees technology. Now, if we, if we look at... Now, what's our working definition of technology again, Zelman? Technology is any any means employed to gain certain ends. There so we go. If we If we're seeking a certain end, however we gain it, is that technology. Right. So his means is the skill of the artist and the power of the image. And I don't necessarily mean like a magical power within it, but just the suggestive power that an image has. Sure. We, we can talk about magic powers or, or supernatural powers within things like the Ark of the Covenant or something like that. But this is different. This is, this is for right now, we're talking about skill of an artist, the power of, of at least the power of suggestion that, right that Nebuchadnezzar is utilizing here. Now, the people could be motivated out of fear of the king. Without question. Yeah. But the, right. But they could also be motivated out of, out of a sincere fear of, of upsetting the idol. Well, especially if you're attributing to it some kind of actual real power, which, you know, of course, the Bible makes it clear again and again it doesn't actually have. Right. But do we, you know, also perceive our technology to have a similar kind of power over us, which it doesn't actually have, right? Certainly, certainly. And then in a sense, it does have a power, which is the suggestion right. here. Our, our technology, in theory, 
For example, your smartphone is yours. You control it. You have your little passcode. Maybe you're a crazy person. You have your fingerprint in there, you know, and or something like that. Sending that right to the government. Yep. (laughs) You know, you've got that. So you think you have control. And yet, where do you find your eyes wandering or your phone's in your pocket and you think it's buzzing or you think it's it's ringing? You know, what really is controlling who here? And I know that sound like just old man, you know, old man yells at cloud here, <laughs> you know, to use the phone as an example, but, but it's the, it's the easiest one for us. It really lulls us into, into something. There is a measure of control that it has. Let me use a very poignant example that I came across in some of my reading on this. And I think it will really drive home the point of control that technology can have on us, even unintentionally. And that is the invention in the Middle Ages of a reliable clock. Now, we don't think of a clock as much of anything. We think of a clock as just being a way of telling the time. But think about what kind of assumptions the clock brings with it. Because prior to the clock, you regulate your time via, you know, the natural signs of the day, right? The sun rises, it's time to get up. The sun's in midday, so maybe it's time for lunch the sun sets, it's time to go to bed. The The rhythms of, of, of God's creation are what actually dictate your sense of how things, how quickly things should be done and when they should be done and all that sort of thing. But with the invention of the clock, which ironically was uh, first developed in the monasteries as a way of, of really helping to, you know, help keep the hours, uh, the liturgy of the hours for regular prayer, you have the beginning of a revolution which actually begins to focus in on itself. I mean, Willie, do you do you regulate your day according to the sun? I mean, do you get up with the sun and you know go to bed with the sun or do you regulate your day according to No, even here at the homestead we have electric light. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah, you know you're absolutely right. And and the point being that even something as seemingly as innocuous as the clock draws so much attention to itself and shapes us in its own image that we really no longer think of time in terms of days or even eternity. We think of time in terms of minutes and hours and seconds, you know, because these these arbitrary designations of, you know, 60-60, which come from the Babylonians for that matter, as so regulates our time that we, you know, think purely in terms of those numbers rather than in terms of what God is actually doing around us, to, to for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah, no, I think that's very well said. Now, that's not to say we're just going to throw your alarm clocks out. It's just simply a case <laughs> of, of, of what orders us and how it shapes us in ways that we don't even understand. Now, to go from Nebuchadnezzar's image to clocks, to phones, railroads, whatever, is not to say that these things are in and of themselves idols. It's simply to say that they take on a power sometimes subtly, that we don't really notice. And so you do bow down to such things. Even unintentionally. Even unintentionally, right. And it's really kind of funny, especially in the case of our modern technologies, our smart devices and everything, even our automobiles, we can't even repair these things. We are totally at the mercy of them and essentially salesmen now because everything is designed to just be disposable at this point. Right. Well, I mean, even even something like electronically, like a lot of music now or games or something delivered electronically bring with them certain kind of uh, copyright protections, you know, digital rights managements, which I understand why they're put in place because we're trying to prevent theft and stuff like that. But in essence, what's happening is companies have possessions of things and retain possessions of things, and you're just kind of given a right to have access to them, which in theory they could take away. You know, so do we really have, do we really own the things that we have? Do we really, you know, can we really understand the way that things work? And so we begin to understand why, especially in the modern era, a technology has taken on this kind of um, almost mysterious kind of character to it. Because, you know, do you understand how your computer works? You know, some do, but I'm willing to bet many don't. You know, the computers that run your computer, uh, run your car, like you said, Willie, can we repair those without the use of another computer? We become so dependent upon everything that we have that 
we start to, in a sense, seem powerless in the face of this kind of technology. Yeah. And as we talked about in the previous episode, it tends to being plugged into all of this tends to actually unplug us from reality. Right. In a lot of ways. But that's for the next segment. We don't want to quite get into that yet. Let's talk a little bit then about perhaps some other examples that we see of technology being used in similar ways as Nebuchadnezzar's here in the Bible. What of Egyptian religion? Do you think that the Egyptian magicians are exhibiting some of this in Exodus? Yeah, I think so. I mean, because they're using their uh, magical means, their magical technologies to exhibit a certain kind of control over nature or what they believe to be a control over nature. And that magic that they're employing is certainly going to contribute to this sense of, of control, this sense of awe, which it would inspire, right? We have talked about magic a little bit. Right. And we understand magic to be a form of technology. Correct. What do you understand magic to be? Very often we take magic in the sense of, you know, this kind of either something totally fake and it's just meant for entertainment, or we take magic as just a, a force of will. You know, like I'm thinking of like Harry Potter conceptions where, you know, it just becomes the two wands fighting against each other. And the one who finally puts his you know, forces, his will upon the other is the one who is the stronger magician. I've never I've never read Harry Potter, but I assume you just spoiled these movies that I'll never watch or books I'll never read. So <laughs> No, I, I to be fair, I haven't done a whole lot either, but I you know, <laughs> it's the iconic imagery. I mean you've sure. seen the, the trailers and stuff, so but in a biblical sense, magic is much more of a sense of that kind of control or seeking control, mm -hmm. employing some kind of means in order to gain that control especially naturalistic means, which is why like, you know, old ideas of magic where you'd have, if you use this one certain thing at a certain hour on a certain day, that would accomplish this end, you know, that manipulation of things around you in order to gain something else. That's what magic is in the biblical sense. Okay, so it's not just a matter of, you know, learning all the spells so that we can force it on someone else. It really is that sense of the deeper things, quote unquote, which we're trying to gain control of. Right. And all of the false religions in the Bible specifically tend to have that kind of magic in common. Right. And I would argue most of the false religions and certainly all of the pagan religions share that. Right. You know, all the way up through, you know, Incas and things like that, which I think we discussed on a podcast at some point. I think it was in the previous episode. Good. So, okay, good to okay. know. <laughs> Start talking about the Spanish conquest again. <laughs> no, but very, yeah, very good definition. With regard to that, what is the inherent danger then of magic? Is it real? Or is the danger merely found in just being being wrong and being led to a false god? I mean, obviously, that's kind of an odd way to phrase the question. I mean, both are horrible things, but do you right. believe that there are... That, that the technology employed by, like, say, the Egyptian magicians could, in theory, be legitimate from a biblical perspective. Not legitimate, but actually have some kind of power apparent to the people who see it. Yeah, see, that's, that's the million-dollar question, especially since we live in, you know, the post-Enlightenment era, which tends to dismiss magic as being all, all fake. Like, there, it can never, ever, ever possibly be real. But then that really begs the question, if it can never possibly be real, why does the Lord spend so much time warning us against it? Right. And see, this is kind of where I'm going with this, too, is when we discuss technology, we're so quick to just think of it in terms of electronics, digital medium, that sort of thing. But there is a kind of a technology at play that's, more, that's older, that's more earthy, that's more naturalistic, that is also harmful. So I think... Right astrology can quickly fall into that. Sure. If we're not careful. It's really weird when you start to look at folk Christianity, even up at the time of the Reformation and beyond, what they were doing, blending this this stuff together with with the biblical religion, things like that, because they understood that the world worked in a certain way. And if you followed the right order and used the right things, then you could get a desired result. 
And for whatever reason, these views are prevalent throughout the entire world. So we're faced with a couple options. The first one, which I think is completely untenable, is that it's just a big coincidence and there's nothing to it. The second one's going to be, okay, there might it, it might not be true. Like, okay, if I if I crack a robin's egg over this rock at this time during this season, I'll get a new husband or something like that. Okay, we're not <laughs> saying that that works, but whatever forces are behind false religion, and we know what they are, they are demons. It's just too much of a coincidence to me that all of these religions share these commonalities. So whether the the result happens or not, people believe that they will get the desired result, and they've been led to do all sorts of things from rather innocuous rituals all the way up to, say, the self-harm of the Baal worshippers to actual human sacrifice because people are lulled by idols into doing these things. Now, Paul's admonition is good. And he's right, obviously. He is an apostle. <laughs> that we only have a couple options when it comes to idols, that they're, that they're wood or stone or ostensibly demons. But, the, but his point is the actual physical idol itself has no power. Right. The only power it has are these forces working sort of through it or outside of it to manipulate people towards it. And perhaps that's what we have with our own version of technology, too. Is communication across the globe instantaneously a good thing? I think we could say, yeah, it is a good thing, ultimately. Is it going to be used for nefarious purposes? Absolutely. Is it is it also creating a sense of urgency, which means that we treat even trivial information as more important than it is? Yeah. You know, I, I think that's the case, too. Flesh that out a bit. Well, I mean... We talk so much about being able to communicate instantaneously, and we think, oh, this can only be a good thing, but what if what if it's the case that we have nothing to talk about? Right. But because we have the ability, we have to force stuff through it, which is why we get the concept of like 24-hour news stations. Right. Or, you know, these 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 ideas that we always have to be constantly taking in more and more and more just because we can. Right. Yeah, and I think that we, we find this, you know, you can think of like a, a younger person like who's obsessed with a video game on the phone or on whatever because it's addictive, but also because it's what everybody else is doing. Right. And the older crowd kind of falls into that too, where they're going to obsess over, I don't know, how about the market? Or they're going to, obs- <laughs> you know, they're going to obsess over sports scores or they're going to obsess over what the neighbor across the street is posting on Facebook or the neighbor across the country is posting on Facebook, that kind of thing. I think you're onto something here. It kind of creates an obsession that wouldn't normally be there to that degree. Right. I mean, we've always had gossips. We've always had busy bodies and nosy people and, biz- and and people who are distracted. But these devices not only enable the distraction and the obsession, but I would argue that they encourage it because it's more financial incentive for the corporation for you to spend time on that. There's a greater financial incentive for the person who made the app or the person who owns the website or whatever. There's all kinds of interested parties, I guess we'll say, when it comes to modern technology. Which is why, you know, it's, it's so difficult to quit these things too. You know, people say like, oh, I'm quitting Facebook. Well, it's like, okay, we'll see in a couple of weeks kind of a thing. Yeah. It's always a big formal announcement when they leave Facebook and they're going to go and leave forever or be gone for an entire season. And then quietly two weeks later, they slip back in unannounced, you know, the great <laughs> claws of the social media. And frankly, it's a little bit spooky. Once you get into this, you see all the interests here, you know, they, this company wants you looking at your phone as much as you can. This company wants you to the app makers, the website designers, the social media engineers. And when you start looking at the one or two things they all have in common, it's, That's a little bit spooky, fam, but we've got to take a break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken.
Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. We are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken, Willie Grills and Zelwyn Heidi talking technology and the Christians. So some very good and interesting and kind of spoopy stuff there. Talking about idolatry, <laughs> magic, Tubal Cain, Nebuchadnezzar. It's really good. Well, let's take a look then at the Bible, uh, the New Testament now, and see if it has anything to tell us about technology or at least the Christian attitude toward it. Zelwyn? Well, we've we've been talking about technology in terms of power, and we've kind of been talking about technology in terms of divinity or how it kind of renders man powerless. And so the next, I think, natural progression is, is how do we fill in that sense of powerlessness? You know, how do we fill in our time, especially in an age which has all of its needs fulfilled? Sure. Our needs are fulfilled in abundance in the industrial in the industrial age. Wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, even in uh, the third world, there are conveniences that the first world didn't have 200 years ago or even right. 100 years ago. Yeah, it's, it really has become something fairly unusual, fairly new in, in maybe in, in a relative sense. But it's not totally new because, as we're going to see in the parable of the rich fool, a technology can also lead to a kind of distractedness, a kind of, well, maybe to put it bluntly, consumerism that I think really characterizes our age. So let's, this comes from Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, see, the parables are all gospels, Ellen. And <laughs> Jesus doesn't actually mean for you to forsake anything. That That is clear. <laughs> well, okay, we're done. Shut it down. <laughs> Shut it down. They've already tried, Ellen. They can't. Anyway... <laughs> Right. So this man, it's interesting. The rich fool is not a particularly evil man by any stretch of the imagination. Right. If anything, he's doing what worldly wisdom would say to do. Keep preparing for the next day, hoard up, save, right? Right. Be be responsible now. And now when you've got enough, you can eat, drink, and, and be merry. So, and, and think that you have all this time secure and and ready. And really, the, the following verses highlight this even more for us when it talks about God providing for the fields and for the ravens and how much more will he provide for you and, and that he loves and things like that. And that's what it comes down to for the rich fool and for the worried Christian or the worried anyone. It's that I don't believe that I'm going to be sufficiently prepared, so I must make arrangements to be sufficiently prepared. But we mean that only in an earthly sense. I have to prepare right. for my future here without concern for eternity. So we'll spend our whole lives looking for the right, we'll say technology, the right means in order to make my life here easy. And that becomes the sole and driving focus. 
Now, it doesn't just mean for us easy in the case of having enough food all the time. It can be easy in a social sense, having the right devices, having the right vehicle, the right clothes, being in the right clubs, that kind of thing. We, we forget about it in sort of these other these other perspectives. But all of these things come to be something that man serves. So if our people are taught that in order to be secure, they must have X amount of money, they must have this kind of insurance policy, they must have this kind of clothing, this kind of home, this kind of vehicle, this kind of education, who is their master then? Yeah, I mean it's it's not God. <laughs> no, it, it isn't. And and these people are doing what the rich fool did, not being evil in that sense. They don't think of it in terms of that way, and they don't intend it to be that way. But that is what ends up happening. The rich fool, you know, he he doesn't do a bad thing by simply having his goods stored up, right? Right. Well, his his sin comes in because he is so focused on those things, as right. you say, he loses sight of eternity. Right. Absolutely. And we used to talk about dying to the world somewhere along the way. <laughs> it's written somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where. You know, th- this is why I think Memento Mori <laughs> Memento Mori is actually probably a really good thing to have on everyone's desk somewhere in their home somewhere. Just to remind you that the same thing awaits all of us. And you might, through transhumanism, technology, quality care, you might live 110 years. Or, fool, your life could be required of you tonight. And all the things you've hoarded up are going to be for nothing if you've not prepared for the one thing that comes to all of us. But how easy is it, Willie, to focus on the things of this world? Oh, it's we're all guilty of it. Right. Right. Yeah, nobody's off the hook here. But I don't think we do ourselves a a service by ignoring the plain words of Jesus, where he goes on to say that you will be provided for, and and to say, and to be nervous at those words of his is to actually exhibit a lack of faith. And if faith is the means by which man is justified, well, do you have it? (laughs) And I do want to ask the hard questions. I'm going to go all law. I don't know. Does Walter? <laughs> what does Walter say about a podcast? Must the gospel predominate? <laughs> I I don't think he envisioned a <laughs> podcast. But and I don't mean this to just to just come down on everyone. But we need to ask ourselves that. That's the hard thing to do. Jesus does not promise you great prosperity. You're not even promised a long life, and certainly not over 121 years or so if you're into the Bible. After a certain point, right? Right. <laughs> Early in Genesis, that lifespan thing, people are living longer before the flood. It's an interesting time, but we don't want to get into that. Should have, We should have talked about that in segment one. They do literally live longer. And well, yeah, we can get into all the, the fun stuff of Genesis in another right. episode. And for the record, they do literally live that long. I am. Yeah. Right. right but anyway, right. we I don't even know where I was going with this now. See, now we're a true podcast. So, yes, to take the words of Jesus plainly. Jesus does not promise us great prosperity in the world. If anything, the servant of Christ does promise anything but that. But we are promised we won't lack. And we are promised that God will provide for us. And we need to always have that in mind and pray to God in thanksgiving for that. I think we've taken the words of the catechism and only used like the first half where where Luther says these things come without our prayer and then it's like we stopped reading. <laughs> so we don't even need to pray for it. We're we're good. So anyway, but no anyway, God is going to provide and it's up to us to believe in that. That's what we're called to do to trust in God. And it's easy to trust in God when we have plenty in our in our barns and storehouses to use the parable of the rich fool. But it's just as easy to forget about God when we have those things. And maybe the another driving point behind all of this too, and kind of getting back to the original idea of consumerism, I think the great difficulty with consumerism is because it's so focused in on itself and in on the things of this life. What ends up happening is is that we start to focus solely on the material things of life, thinking that in the getting is where our happiness lies. But what Jesus is trying to teach us here is it's not in the getting of possessions that's going to make us happy. It's actually in the knowing that 
we have been provided for and God will take care of us in every situation and including the the care for our souls. Certainly. But but consumerism unfortunately this in this constant cycle of consumption which characterizes our society is really just more interested in the next big thing thinking that's what life consists in. Sure. Right. I'm trying to bring it back to yelling at the cloud. (laughs) Right. And again, it's not to make it just simply trite, you know, oh, the latest music, the latest clothes, but it's becoming more and more insidious. It's, it's, it's getting into the latest gene modifications and the latest, I mean, it's medical science is run amok. It's often getting into the latest religious fad, which, which we haven't seen in a little while, but you know, eventually, you know, it used to be every couple of years, Oprah would switch religions or something. Or, she, you know, she would have some book and everybody would be reading it and the world will be dumber for it. And we haven't had that yet. It, it'll it'll come back around, though. I think what we're going to see are people moving away from naturalistic things and back into esoteric things. And then it's just going to get bad in a different way than it has been. Sure. Because sure. it's the same thing. People are trying to employ means to get what they want. There's nothing new under the sun here. But in the current system that we live in, we run the risk of divorcing Christianity from ethics, and so our life then does not consist in a biblical worldview and in a biblical lifestyle. And people don't like to hear that because you think we're talking like Jerry Falwell or something like that. Or, you know, what I mean is you need to have your hair always trimmed short and parted to the right, and you need to only wear chinos, business casual, when you can, and then, you know, have your double-breasted suit for formal occasions or something like that. And that's not... Sounds pretty good. That's, that's though, It's but. really pretty wholesome. I don't know why I'm saying that like it's a bad thing. But but that's what they want. And then, in, in, you know, we're, when we say things like this, like you need to really realign the way you view the world with the way God would have us do, because it is a dangerous thing to not take to heart the words of Jesus. Well, then all of a sudden the crowd who's covered in whatever body modifications and piercings and everything want to come down hard on us and say, oh, so so what? So you, you, you think that my lifestyle is not Christian? You think this? You don't get the gospel. That's exactly what happens in these cases. And I'm really kind of tired of these people. I'm tired of them taking the gospel and completely turning it backwards or taking the words of God and turning it backwards because they do the exact same thing that the idolaters of the Bible do which is to ignore God and then try to find some way of comfort and, and some easy way in the world by employing various technologies. And that's absolutely what we see with these Christians, these ministries rather, that are all about aping the world, looking like the world with this slick graphic design interfaces and, and all of this, you know, oh, death to religion, religion's bad. Like it, like it's like you're some rebellious kid with your Utah jazz cat backwards sitting in your Salt Lake City condo in 1985 or something like that like you're not edgy all right dude and 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 nobody sees that as as authentic what is authentic and what is true rebellion what is true death to the world is a christian family just trying to live their life as christians in the world without all this edgelord nonsense from whatever you know new lutheran or whatever group has popped up to tell me how uncool i am and, and that's what we need. We need more sincere Christian families who live lives divorced from obsession over technology, obsession over worldly looks and worldly images. That, there's your debt to the world. That's what God calls us to do. If you are fitting in well in the world, if you're pleasing everyone in the world, if you just look exactly like them and act exactly like them and everything you do is to try to make Christianity Oh, cool and hip or a little bit softer for them to get into. Congratulations. You're going to be the ELCA in five years. And congratulations. You're going to be in the cult of Baal in six years. So that, that's where you found yourself. And it's not a petty subject. And I don't mean to just come down hard and I'm not trying to be judgmental, although I guess I am judging some of these groups, but I have to because even a dog barks when his master is accosted. So why, right. who are we to be silent when, when our Lord's word is attacked? And who are we to be silent when, he, when we see the people, the Christians in the world, being attacked not simply by, say, Muslims in Islamic countries, but attacked by these huge global interests that seek to enslave them simply to 
their technology, their product, whatever they have. This is the way the world's going. We have a bunch of of people enslaved. It's it's zombieism, right? They just sort of walk around and they're disconnected. Christianity is community, and community first begins with family. And we have to have that. We need to be connected to real people. Technology is good, and let's let's let it serve godly ends. But we first and foremost have to look at our fellow men in the eye and actually live as Christians in the world around real humans. We need to unplug and then actually interact with one another again. What can I say after that? <laughs> that I mean, it, it really drives home the point. And I think maybe the, the real reason why we are you know sounding the trumpet clearly with an issue like technology and even as as convoluted as it can be is exactly what you're talking about, how it has become such a domineering factor in our lives that I can't imagine many of us actually wanting to take that step. But maybe it's a step we you know, are being called to take. I know from my own personal experience, I have increasingly been feeling the effects of technology on my life and how certain things can distract me in, you know, well, frankly, in unprofitable ways. And I'm beginning to kind of resent that kind of control that this technology has over me. And unfortunately, I can't get away from it entirely. I mean, there's some things you just can't get away from. You have to deal with the fact that we are still living in a culture with, you know, meat sacrificed to idols, you know, metaphorically. But the fact being that if we recognize the issue and recognize that there is something going on in technology, especially in the current age, then we can actually begin to take steps and ask ourselves, how can we use this in a godly way? Because unfortunately, that consumerist mindset just kind of lends itself to that, that unthinking, just, you know, consume product, repeat ad nauseum, that doesn't actually end up being all that profitable for our souls. Right. What happened to, you know, Paul's injunction of saying, you know, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, you know, talk about these things, focus on these things, seek the things of God, the things that are above, and don't worry about tomorrow and what new technology is coming out from Silicon Valley or whatever. Just focus on the things of eternity and God will take care of us regardless. There, I got my... No, there you go. No, you got it. And again, we're not Luddites. Obviously, we're on a podcast here. So we do think there are are positive things to do. Again, we we are talking about devotion and obsession and those sorts of things, which, which are not of God. Devotion to false things, obviously, not of God. So right. what's our what's our final words for you? Simply this. Obviously, keep listening to this podcast, but <laughs> if you're going to use technology, use it for good ends and just be disciplined and be wise with it. It's just like your food. Don't be a glutton or alcohol. Don't be a, don't be a drunkard. So maybe take some time off when you need to. I don't know. Take your shoes and socks off and go stand in the grass. Just do something. You know, go dig in the dirt. Do something, right? Hey, even better, like kind of put away Bible Gateway and logos and just open up a nice leather-bound Bible and read out of it. Get together with your families and read from it. Pray together. Pray alone. Pray with your family. Pray with your church. Be connected in that way. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you, and God bless. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you.